This week's episode of the Uptime Energy Podcast is pretty exciting because Joel, Rosemary, and I take a, a deep look into the Siemens Gamesha issues. Obviously, they're going through a little bit of turmoil at the moment, and uh, we have a discussion about what, what that means for engineering and, and for the company in, in a larger context. The discussion is not necessarily focused on Siemens Gamesa. I think we really get into a, a lot of uh, dis good discussion back and forth and maybe a little bit heated at times uh, about how engineering should function. Uh, and wind turbine companies have had some real significant design issues and, and some manufacturing issues to go along with it. Uh, those are really tough to overcome. Uh, but Rosemary, Joel, and I have worked at a lot of different companies, and we've seen a lot of different engineering uh, management styles and organizations. And we, we think sometimes those have a big influence on the quality of the product that goes out the door. Uh, so this discussion is really interesting and good. Uh, and it, it's, it's meant to kick off a, a lot of discussion in the, in the industry of how to run an engineering organization, how to uh, create a quality product, and to avoid some of the, the costly decisions that Siemens Gamesa is going through. So it's a good episode, so stick with us. I'm Alan Hall, president of WeatherGuard Lightning Tech, and I'm here with the vice president of North American Sales for Wind Power Lab, Joel Saxum, and international renewables expert, Rosemary Barnes. And this is the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. So the big news this week, if you haven't seen it already, is that Siemens Gamesa <laughs> had an internal review to look at the status of their existing onshore and offshore fleet. And during that review, uh, it was identified about $1 billion in offset, which means that they're, they're going to have to set aside about a billion dollars to take care of some of the, I think, design issues is what I'm hearing and some manufacturing issues, and these are just coming to light after having about a half billion dollar write down in early this year, like January, the same sort of thing had happened, uh, preparing for warranty claims and repairs that are going to have to happen uh, in, the, in the near future. This, of course, set Siemens stock tumbling uh, about 25-30%. By the time you hear this podcast, it may have recovered some because I do think there's obviously there's value in Siemens and Siemens Gamesa. Uh, but it does set everybody um, in the in the wind energy space uh, to become really concerned because you don't want to hear that a large player such as a Siemens Gamesa is having the stock drop and Siemens stock drop. Um, that kind of drop is dramatic and can really injure a company, not in the short term, but really in the long term. And Joel, I know... Uh, the other players, the Vestas's, the GE's, the Cessalons of the world, didn't seem to get too rocked by that. It seemed to be almost solely sort of a Siemens event. Yeah, and I mean, when when a company comes out, no matter what space they're in, and they have to basically retract their guidance for the next year, that's that's a shockwave, right? That's that's nuclear. It doesn't matter if you're in healthcare or you're whoever. It's going to be uh, a big issue. If you look at the the stock ticker, so June twenty first is when this report came out. They were trading at twenty five dollars a share U.S. The next day they were down to sixteen. Uh, since then it's the twenty eighth now. So a week later they've recovered to seventeen. 
So 35% down in the last few days. Uh, that's that's brutal. But when it comes to investor advice, right? So they give quarterly reports and they have prospectuses and everybody makes their decision investment-wise. And you're talking about global investment in a company like that. Uh, all the advisors are, are reading those portfolios and looking at what's going on in the marketplace and trying to predict the future. Obviously, they didn't predict that. Right, because the stock price wouldn't have dropped like that because usually the market's about six months out in front of uh, current status, right? And so that's <clears throat> that's a trouble. So the, the market's saying six months out, Siemens is going to be really crushed. Yeah, you know, like you said, it, did, it didn't really affect anybody else in the market stock too much. Um, and a lot of times when something falls like that, you will see, you know, uh, like when the when uh, back during COVID, there was a chip a uh, chip chip company, I don't remember which one it was, that they made an announcement similar to this. And across the board, all of this people that were in that same semiconductor manufacturing, all of their stocks started to drop. So this one was specific to Siemens with warranty issues. But we also know through watching this, like they all have it, right? Vestas has issues. Vestas had the same thing happen to them about two years ago when they had to sink a bunch of money into. Um, and, and to be honest with you, like we said, we were actually talked about this, I think last week um, I or two weeks ago when we were talking about the TPIs. Uh, investment stock, you and I, um, Alan. And when people were saying like, oh, it's a little bit, uh, it's positive to invest in TPI right now because their their future looks like it's kind of bright. Um, I follow this the mark these markets and I have for a long time. And you, to be honest with you, the manufacturer's stocks haven't been doing good for a while. Uh, but to see this is a pretty big blow. Rosemary, I think part of this got triggered because Siemens is requiring all of Siemens Gamesa that somebody in management thought it'd be wise to do a, a technical review, basically a critical design review of the existing turbines, what's going out the door right now, and see where they're at. And my guess that in, would involve talking to customers, looking at warranty claims, uh, talking to repair people about what's happening in the field. And that triggered a couple of alarms. Now, early indications are from a number of various sources that it's blade-related on onshore for the 5X, maybe a little bit on the 4X, but also they're having bearing issues related to blade issues, in a sense. Um, not a lot of specifics because they have so many bearing suppliers. There's four or five different bearing suppliers, and nobody was talking about which one it was. It Was it a manufacturing issue with a specific one? That was an early indication, but it, it seems to be a little bit wider than that. And Rosemary, having worked for a large blade manufacturer... Isn't some of these design reviews part of sort of built into the system that normally you would be having sort of critical design reviews of an existing product or obviously of a new one, but of an existing product to make sure that you are tracking the way you think the design should be going? Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I'm sure that they were doing design reviews. I don't think that, you know, five years ago they stopped doing design reviews and now they realize that's a bad idea. I mean, they were doing design reviews and there must have been some process or some new material or some new design feature that has somehow made it through, you know, the end of its um, its project lifetime to now have rolled out to, you know, all the blades or a lot of the blades are saying 15 to 30% affected. I don't know if they're expecting 15 to 30% failures or there's 15 to 30% that have the feature that may fail or one of the features that may fail um, but it sounds much less contained than most of the issues that I deal with 
So maybe it's a good idea to explain how the um, development um, cycle works for uh, yeah, a technology project. So, you know, let's say that this is related to something like a, a new, I don't know, a new sandwich core material or a new resin or, you know, a new material of some other kind, a new manufacturing process, whatever it is. Um, they'll start out, they'll do, you know, some, some tests in the lab and some component tests and um, assuming that that all goes well, then they will implement it into a single, a single new blade. Um, they will make a, a test blade of, of that blade. You know, you have to do that for certification, um, test that and then roll it out. And th along the way, there are different reviews. Um, often called stage gate reviews. So there might be five gates. You know, the first one is we've done a business case and this looks like it's a smart project to do. Second, we've, you know, um, done all of the desktop engineering that you could do to make sure that this is likely to succeed. Third, we've done tests in the, the lab and it's all looking positive. Um, you know, we've talked with the factories and they think that we can incorporate in there. Fourth, we've made some blades um, and uh, everything went fine and you know the test blade is good and then at, at the end of the process however they line up those numbers and the milestones at the end of the process it will have been in several factories um, and maybe in several blade designs as well um, and everything's fine and they're like okay great this is a new technology that we can roll out at, at will across new new designs um, and it sounds to me with such a large effective population it's not just a few blades from you know a new um, product they that they knew was um, was was new was untested. It sounds like it's made it all the way to the end, and they've been rolling it out on mass before before they realize there was something wrong. Um, the fact that they thought to do a comprehensive design review and then were okay to um, publicly say the results is huge you know so it would have started out the occasional failure here or there um and this is the kind of thing that i get involved in a lot when i'm helping clients with like root cause analysis or defects because you know at first you have one or two defects and um the manufacturer is like oh that's a that's a freak occurrence um and then the you know the asset owner is like oh seems like you know we've got five percent of our population affected and then you know a couple of months later it's like oh now we're up to ten percent like this doesn't really seem like you know that many freak occurrences is something that would have happened um and then eventually the manufacturer is like okay yeah there's something some serial issue going on here we need to go back and like really get the the smartest best um engineers on the case do some tests um you know, like really go through with a fine tooth comb everything that's happened in the um, all the factories where this issue is coming out of, um, and it, you know, figure out what's going on. And so they must have gone through that process to now realize, oh no, this is something that is, you know, there's a feature that turns out to be wrong that's in so many blades. So there's, yeah, that sinking feeling of, okay, this is a large affected population. And then there's the next part of that where it's like, well, what's it going to take to rectify this? Because, you, you know, you need to know what's the effect of this failure going to be. And, you know, if it's a, a, a big impact, you could see in some kinds of defects, you might see blades just falling off, <laughs> off the turbine every now and then. 
um, that's kind of, you know, like the, the maximum, most catastrophic um, impact that there could be. Um, and in that case, you need to be pretty cautious about making sure that you get to every blade before that, um, that happens. And yeah, I don't know if it's, if it's that bad um, for them. It, it, it might not be based on how much money they're saying, you know, they're not going to be preemptively shutting down every turbine and replacing every blade, but it's, it's somewhere along the line in severity where they know that they're going to have to get service personnel out to, you know, 15, 30%. And these numbers never go down. They always go up on, on these, um, these kind of campaigns, as you realize, you, you know, the extent of it is worse than you thought. Let's do some backwards math on that. So it says 15 to 30% of 132 gigawatts. So if we say 132 gigawatts, right, times 1,000, 132,000 megawatts, and if we say these are five megawatt machines times 30% of them, that's 8,000 machines that need to be looked at. And times by three to get the number of blades. Yeah. So that's, but I mean, that's 8,000 site visits, right? And, uh, and, and, and again, those are arm, that's armchair math. So I don't, you can't really say, but, but the, the problem here, one of the problems in the market, right? Or in the, as Wall Street and investors are looking at it is, is, if you read through all the in between the lines and in, you know, Reuters and everybody else that's talking about this electric and all the different places, they're saying one of the trouble, troublesome things is they're saying it may cost around this, but they can't actually put their finger on it because it's such a big problem. They don't know. And that's the troubling thing for investors is saying like, yeah, you're, you're looking at a possible billion dollars, but it could be more. Right. Because they just don't they don't have, they don't know. And an article I read said that they expect it's going to wipe out their profit on all of their service agreements potentially. And I mean, I, I don't know Siemens Gamesa's um, specific business model, but in general, a lot of manufacturers are selling their turbines at a loss in the expectation that they make their profit on the service agreement. So they are potentially saying that, you know, everything they've done in the last five or so years is going to have cost them money rather than made them money and it could get it could get bigger. So I mean I've it's a huge, a huge issue. Hey uptime listeners, we know how difficult it is to keep track of the wind industry. That's why we read PES Wind magazine. PES Wind doesn't summarize the news. It digs into the tough issues, and PES Wind is written by the experts, so you can get the in-depth info you need. Check out the wind industry's leading trade publication, PES Wind at PESWind.com. I think this sounds like an engineering escape, right? And that's what I read between the lines, that there there is an engineering oversight that for some effect they weren't planning on happening. It's like a secondary harmonic or some weird vibration that's being induced into the blades that's causing a problem. Or it may be something really as fundamental, like a core splice, right? You got something that maybe you change the material and, and you, it didn't perform as you expected. Variety of different reasons, hot, cold, who cares? Uh, but it, I think the design of the engineering system internally is really key to catching those early, right? It isn't... I, everybody has a slightly different engineering group and way of managing engineers. Are they testing themselves hard enough, right? I, I think it's 
engineers are not a bunch of people to take criticism lightly, but it's almost like you have to build in a system of criticism internally to vet out these weird problem areas. Yeah. And I mean, that's something that I did see a few times in my career. Cause you know, when I went into the wind industry, I had been outside of it, you know, I'm not, not European. I, um, I worked in a lot of other kinds of technologies before I, um, you know, for about 10 years before I went into wind. Um, and so I would often, you know, see risks that people in the industry are like, oh, no, that will never happen. You know, trust us. We've, we've been working on it a long time. That, that did happen, but um, never on something this, this major. So, I mean, there is a system in place where you have design reviews and you do something um, that well, my company we called it um, the FMEA, the Design Failure Modes Effects Analysis where you go through every single design feature, every single way that you can think of that it could fail, um, and you get a bunch of engineers involved that have, you know, uh, a lot of experience and have seen a lot of failures and can think of a lot of things that can go wrong. Um, and, you know, you spend hours um, on new designs uh, going through all that, and then you, you know, you prioritize them. So you assign weightings to how bad would it be if this failure happened? Um, and so, you know, the worst kind of failure is something that might make a blade fall off or might make a um, turbine catch on fire or could kill someone in some other way. Um, and then you think, how likely is it that this would happen? And then you multiply those two numbers together and something that is, you know, very likely and very bad, then you spend a lot of resources trying to test that um, to, you know, the maximum extent and be really sure that it's not going to um, not going to happen and come up with, you know, multiple levels of safety on something like that so that you would need, you know, like several kind of un unexpected failures before you would get that outcome. Um, but you can only, it's, it's human basically, it relies on people thinking of what could go wrong. And so when you get like a truly new failure mode, it's highly likely that nobody has seen it before. Wind energy companies are pretty good at um, sharing workers amongst them. You know, I had heaps of colleagues who had spent three years at Vestas, then three years at Siemens, then three years at GE, and you know, um, <laughs> might go all the all the way like through through all of them, or at least through all the Danish ones. Um, but they're not as good, in my opinion, they're not as good at getting people from outside the industry. So, you know, I guarantee that this failure mode isn't, it's not the first time in the whole world of all engineering that a failure like this has been seen. But I would be pretty willing to bet that it is the first time it's been seen in the wind industry, because otherwise I feel like it would have been, it would have been caught. It would have been, you know, noted as something that was likely to happen and it would have been tested for and it, it wouldn't have happened. Yeah, but history indicates that most of the failures that happened in sort of larger engineering projects were uh, had plenty of warning that were ignored by engineers or ignored by mechanics at the time, or particularly management wants to ignore it because it's not on the high priority list and it just gets not enough oversight for it. I can name thousands of those. I think it's really easy to say, oh, you know, there were all the warnings and this was ignored. But the fact is that, you know, you come up with a very, very long list of things that could fail on any project you do. And any project that you do, if you were to um, test the maximum every single risk on your list, you would never have an economic project. So you absolutely have to prioritize 
and you know like if just because this risk was on the list kind of towards the bottom with a low expected um likelihood of failing that way and a low consequence you know that's different to being ignored if if it was high uh, high risk and high likelihood then the system should be set up that you can't ignore it you can't pass you know the gate that you need to to move to the next project phase and I mean, if that was the case, that that had happened, then management would be getting fired. Well, that's what's happening now. Now they're saying, like, basically, they're coming out and saying after the merger, they're realizing some stuff and say, oh, wait, too much has been swept under the rug here. Right. And that's the that's the the words right from the press script. Too much has been swept under the carpet. So there's actually like a cultural problem, it sounds like, from some of these reports at Siemens Camesa. So in the ideal world, Rosemary, like you're saying, absolutely, all these engineering concepts processes and things would be in play but if there's somewhere along the line someone's sweeping on a rug or they're not paying attention to it or they're doing something to to disguise this which i'm not saying they are but the the reports from it say too much has been swept under the rug we've got a cultural problem uh, i'm going to expect that there's going to be some some director level heads rolling from this myself after an internal investigation I mean, it could be pushing things through to the next level when it wasn't ready for it, um, and, which does happen from time to time. If you've got, you know, you've got an order of a thousand turbines and um, you have one or two things to check off before you're actually supposed to go through to serial manufacturing, then yeah, certainly sometimes that gets pushed through. But then the really common one that I see like that is where um, people won't accept that it's a serial defect um, until w- way past when it's obvious. You know, I see this time and time again when I'm getting involved in root cause analysis. I'm like, your root cause analysis shows that it was, you know, a freak one-off and it is just not plausible that this same thing has happened, you know, on 5 or 10% of the blades of this wind farm and you're just saying that we're unlucky. Like the statistics just say, no, that's not possible. Yeah, but it can take a year or, um, you know, longer uh, before <laughs> it's, management at the manufacturers don't seem to accept a serial defect until there is literally no other explanation and any idiot could see it, you know, um, I guess it's a strong incentive to, to, to hope at least that, um, that, you know, defects are one-off fluke occurrences. Joel, I mean, we just went through this a couple of years ago with the, that's lightning issue with a single manufacturer, right? How, how, how long did they push off and denying this is a solo event, doesn't happen anywhere else. Meanwhile, you're hearing about it in other countries, same same thing. <laughs> They're still trying to push it off. That's a cultural thing. If this was a if this was a merger that was uh company XYZ and company ABC, you, you're gonna be looking at that. But when it's essentially Siemens eating themselves and then finding the issue, right? They made their own dinner and now they're getting food poisoning from it. And they're like, oh well, this sucks. You know, that's what that's what's happening. So their stock, their the parent company took a dive too. Their stock, and not not as extreme, right? They went from like eighty four or eighty seven dollars, like eighty three. They lost five percent in value or something. All one party now. Yeah, somewhere along the line, there's gonna be some. There will be some systematic changes within how they either culturally people at the director level, um, how they do what we're talking about here, engineering review. These kind of things, because, I mean, we have seen serial defects and this is what this is what this screams serial defect. Right. And they're like 15 to 30, 15 to 30 percent. So that's a design issue in my mind. Right. And Rosemary, correct me if I'm wrong, but I would say 15 to 30 percent of the fleet. You got a design issue. You got a big problem. You've got to go check this out. So there's something there that got through. Um, 
a billion dollars is hard to swallow. Uh, and I would say that that's going to take that will take profit from all their services or service uh, work from more than even just this year. Not to mention sales going forward. I mean, if I was advising someone of which turbine they should be buying for their upcoming project, then, you know, if they were considering Siemens Gamesa, then there's a few key bits of information that are missing that I would need to know before I felt comfortable recommending any of their um, turbines going forward. I would want to know, one, what the problem slash problems were. It's probably several. Um, and what what they're doing to fix it, how they missed the old thing and how they're going to be sure that the fix design fix has been tested better than the old one was. And I mean, it took years for, for this previous problem to be discovered. I'm not going to be convinced with, you know, some desktop engineering that, okay, the new fix is all fine. I'm going to be wanting to see test results and operational results from a statistically significant number of um, of blades or turbines, depending on what the issue is. So that means, you know, tens of turbines, not just, um, you know, one test blade and, and that's fine. Yeah, and we're, and we're good. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, that's years before people are really going to start feeling comfortable about this product again. Yeah. And, and didn't we just see an article not too long ago that said like Siemens order book is starting to surge a bit? Like, so they're just starting to come up. Oh, brutal. How would you feel if you had just signed on the dotted line for a wind farm full of Siemens Gamesa turbines? You know, you'd be trying to back out of that as... You would. Yeah. I mean, you, that you you would. The only thing that might save them is that it's impossible to get to get turbines fast at the moment. So, you know, if you're about to have some Siemens Gamesa turbines delivered, then you you may well be convinced in, okay, yeah, well, this is what's coming and this is what we understand and this is what we're going to do about the the blades that are um, and other turbine components that are already installed. But my goodness, this is not going to be good. I would classify it as a force majeure event. If I was, if I had just signed for a wind farm, I would, I would try to go with that because there's always that backdoor clause in every contract, especially when you're talking big industrial cash like this and capital. If you're, uh, I would say, uh, you know, because it, being, okay, so Rosemary, you're in the blade world. I'm in the blade world. Alan, you play in the blade world as well. I'm going to, uh, you know, I'm going to say right now, I believe I know which one of the models of this thing for sure. I'm not going to say it on on air because I don't want to be wrong and I don't want to say something into to cast. But if I if I I mean the, that's a a barroom whisper. Everybody knows what model one of these is. And if you're if you had just ordered some of these, you're definitely backing out of this. I would like to see so so in a couple of these articles and and because of what we know, uh, quarter three coming up, August seventh, they're due to do a report a filing for, for quarter three. So I'm going to tell you right now, I would say that's not going to come on August 7th. They're going to file for an extension. It'll be mid-August, end of August, before anything comes out. And when that report comes out, um, you, you're, you're going to see some answers, hopefully. Uh, us as, a, as an entire industry will hopefully get some answers out of it. Um, financially, yes. And then hopefully, you know, within those, there's a lot of, there's qualitative data and quantitative data. So we'll see some numbers, we'll see some changes, but hopefully they'll outline what the issue is, what model it is. Models. Models. It has to be, yeah. Does that mean, Rosemary, that from an engineering standpoint, let's just sort of break this problem down a little bit. I think they have an engineering issue, they have a literally a management disclosure issue internally, and, and, and then they have a 
third, a customer issue they got to go figure out. Uh, on the engineering side, what happens, Rosemary? Well, I think um, it's really easy in these cases to say, oh, they've got a management issue. And in a way that, in a way they do, However, everybody has that same management issue, which is the tension between sales and engineering. And, uh, you know, the engineering never gets done to the extent that the engineers want it done. Um, and it's always done more than what the sales team might like to see, you know. So um, if someone was deliberately hiding um, or, you know, deliberately ignoring known problems, then, I mean, heads definitely deserve to roll. But I feel like I would have, we would have heard more about that aspect of the story if that's what it was. I suspect that it's more like just the regular everyday mismanagement of saying, yes, we know that these issues are a risk, but it's worth the risk for the sales. You know, if we, um, if we were to halt everything to address all these risks adequately, then we would miss out on these sales and the company would, you know, cease to continue without sales. That is like a routine everyday <laughs> management dilemma and, you know, a fight that every engineering company I've ever worked in in my whole, you know, nearly 20 years now of career, that's an argument that gets had on every single project between engineers and, and management. So that's, I, I mean, engineers would say that's mismanagement and they're right. But on the other hand, you know, um, managers think that engineers are just so naive that, you know, in terms of the business world. Wind turbine blade damage occurs every day all around the world, and finding knowledgeable engineers to get your blades back in service is a serious problem. And as we know, operating with damaged blades is really, really risky. Well, there is a solution. Meet Windpower Lab, your ultimate partner for blade risk management. Windpower Lab's team specializes in all things blades, from in-factory inspections and root cause analyses to aftermarket product guidance and end of warranty campaigns. It's time to get those damaged blades back working for you. Connect with the global blade experts at Windpower Lab by visiting windpowerlab.com. I want to know, what do you guys think about other companies? Because like I mentioned, you know, in the wind industry and especially in these, um, you know, wind uh, manufacturers in Denmark, they churn through their stuff. They get, you know, they get spread, spread around. Everybody has worked at, um, you know, a, a lot of people have worked at a lot of different companies. Um, so if this issue happened here, and I, I think it must have legitimately surprised uh, some, some people, are we going to see this surprise or something similar in other companies as well? Or is it going to be a feature? I mean, are there really that many features that are so unique? Siemens Gamesa that it couldn't possibly spread to someone else. I think that this could be this could raise uh, hair and raise tensions a little bit more along the same. The article that we saw, like Vestas came out with the other week, that was like slow down to increase speed, right? So the, the OEMs have been, you know, we've been talking about it for the last year and a half on this podcast about so we're, that we're basically building prototypes in the field as production units. Um, and it's because of the demand of the market, right? They want the next best thing, biggest, baddest, blah, blah, blah. Um, but that has created this snowballing effect of, of issues where all of a sudden the OEMs are, you know, uh, ca calling billion dollar loss here. We had Vestas the other, I think it was 700 million for Vestas two years ago. Like, um, when, when these things start to snowball and get worse and worse and worse, um, if you if it continues that way, then we're gonna end up with no OEMs 
to build these things. And that's that's not where we want to be either, right? I remember when we had that conversation about Vestas and, you know, I was um I was criticizing them saying how, you know, you can't just halt technology development or you'll lose sales. I guess that that's the good good management in the sense that engineers would would see it, you know. So maybe they are coming down on the side of yeah, maybe we investors will be the last the last turbine standing now because they're the only ones whose management are prepared to say, you know, these issues are big enough that we need to we need to to stop and pause and take care of them before we move forward. I would be willing to bet you that if we took a if we dug through some data and figured out, okay, hey, say since the year, let's go since year 2010. Uh, how many new mod models of turbines were introduced from each of the major manufacturers? We'll see this increase, increase, increase. And I would be almost willing to bet you that this event, when we look back two, three, four years when we're in the future to now, will flatten that off. Because I, I can see people, the whole industry, and, and one of the other things I'm thinking about here um, is at what level, at, at, what, at what level of disruption to the market does a government step in, right? Does does FERC or, uh, you know, uh, because you, then you start talking about energy security and things like that, right? Are the, some of these guys going to have to go sit in front of the, the EU chancellor and explain themselves when EU is trying to move forward with a lot of, you know, like Green New Deal type things like we are? Or I know like if this was a US manufacturer just happened, they may have to go sit in front of Congress and explain themselves because it's then you're you're talking facts of energy security and that's you know I'm using that as a buzzword but it's it is it's a problem. GE has already cut down the number of turbines, right? So months ago they were on this plan to reduce the number of models, it, towers, everything, the cells, every everything. They're going to just going to slash that down. I mean, they, what Vestas was saying, GE was implementing, Siemens was headed that way anyway, right? The question is, Siemens got caught up in an engineering snafu that they're trying to unwind. I I do think they have to, having gone through these situations and seen it on in the aerospace side several times, they're going to have to try to provide a different sort of structure, right? I think organizationally, management-wise, they're going to have to provide a different structure. Otherwise, the market won't buy into it. They have to show us when they, Joel, you're absolutely right. When you, they get to August and they start having quarterly report again. They have to come with some sort of adjustment saying this is why going forward, this is not going to happen again. If they don't do it in August, they sure as heck have to do it by the end of the year uh, to, to show that there's been a change. And Rosemary, I, I think you're right also in, in terms of the, the way that the engineering is constructed and people hopping from sort of place to place to place. But Joel, what's the first rule of Fight Club? Don't talk about Fight Club. But that doesn't mean there's not a Fight Club, Right. So we talk we talk about engineering like there's no no combat combative situations happening in the engineer, inside the engineering areas there 100 percent are and they 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 have to right and that, those combative episodes happen mostly between engineers and management those things need to happen if they stopped happening because the engineers went passive which what they tend to do they go passive aggressive and say fine all right sure if you want to put that wind turbine out sure we'll sit here and drink coffee and do our thing. And and I think Rosemary's seen it. I've seen it in, in the engineering world. You can't give up on the fight club. The fight club still has to exist or you got to get, get the hell out, right? I think engineering-wise, you need to do that. When there's things that, you know, at some point engineers do feel ethically um, torn over, over something. If they've raised concerns and it's not being taken seriously, then engineers will start quitting. And, you know, I've seen engineers quit over their concerns not being um, taken seriously. 
I haven't, I don't, maybe you guys can tell me if you have, but I haven't anecdotally heard of heaps of people quitting Siemens Gamesa compared to normal. You, you have, Alan? Yeah. Yeah, I have. Yeah. I mean, I think that would be an indicator of a, a real cultural problem more than just the normal tensions. And I was describing before. Right. I'm not saying there's anything. My indications are not systemic, right? It seems to be one off here, one off there. But again, it's respect to like the serial defect thing. And it's always a one-off. It's always a one-off until there's dozens that are walking out the door with concerns. And I'm not sure, I'm not sure Siemens Gamesa is different than other OEMs. Just like in the aerospace side, you hear people walking out of Boeing and Airbus all the time for disputes that they have engineering-wise. That I think is fine. Uh, but I think you have to build in a fight club into your in engineering organization, right? You have to, you have to have to suss out what's real, what's not, get to get to a higher level. And the only way to do that is to sort of internally challenge yourself. That doesn't go over well in a lot of engineering organizations. It's a, it's a tough working environment uh, because you always feel like you're being attacked at some level or being criticized, but only it, what it comes about at the end of the day, and maybe Rosemary's experience is different than mine, is that we seem to have a little bit of better product and maybe build a little weirdly camaraderie, you have to be willing to challenge what's in front of you to make a better product. So here's a question for you, Alan, then, and Rosemary as well. Siemens Gamesa is a German-Spanish company. Two very, very, very different cultures. Do you believe that some of this could still be stemming from the Gamesa mergers and stuff from years past in the engineering side? I, I don't know. you got to throw Danish in there to the you know blade design that it, it's it's one of the danish companies even without that being in its heritage it's i don't know to what extent they ever really properly meshed certainly the impression that i got from working with them was uh, it was danes and a few germans i guess for onshore and um spanish for offshore and i don't think that they ever really got the one one culture across everything. I mean, certainly they would have had processes standardized across um, factories and stuff, but um, I would be surprised if that was the cause of the, the issue. I'm, I'm with Rosemary on that. I, I don't think that that is a driver as much as if you're tasked with running that organization and you know you have two separate companies, two separate cultures, it is your job to fix that and to make it one company. Change management is not easy. It's not easy, but that's why you get paid the big bucks, right? It's Fight Club, guys. Like you said, it's a really hard um, thing to try and get on with your colleagues, but also to f fight with them. And I mean, I certainly had plenty of fights in design reviews, and you need to see more of more of that. Yes, I agree with you, Rosemary. You should. But it's career limiting to be that person. I'll tell you that now. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I've been there before too. But here, so here's, 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 let me give you a, ta uh, uh, not a tale of caution, but a, uh, a case study. MHI Vestas. What happened there? Vestas, Danish company. MHI comes in. MHI is Mitsubishi Heavy Industries. It's a Japanese company. They came in. They said, we're going to take over the offshore world by storm. It lasted, what, two, three years? Culturally couldn't work. Back out. Now it's Vestas again. Right. So same kind of thing with two very different cultures. They saw the issue and said, this isn't going to happen. Let's split it back up. No, but like trickle, trickling of, of changes, you know, individual hires from different people, recognising that people from other industries have something to bring and 
I'll be honest, I think that Europe in general is bad at this. They tend to see like really linear career paths and they want you, if you're going to apply for a new role, you better have done that exact role before. Otherwise, they don't think that, you know, you can, um, you've got anything to bring. I see that with the automotive industry in Europe as as well. And, you know, all, it, try and try and get a job outside your industry in Europe. And it is incredibly challenging because um, I don't think that they really respect um, diversity of, of the right kind. You know, like diversity doesn't just mean that everybody doesn't physically look the same when you're in a meeting room. Diversity means people have different experiences, so they're going to see different potential problems and think of different potential solutions as well. So uh, I think that, you know, like individual hire by individual hire is the best way to do this, but that's not fast, you know. If you're you're letting human resources decide who your engineering team is, you are screwed. That is, I think that is what's happening in some of these places where Again, yeah, you want to try to pick people from different industries. You want to have different experiences. You want to put them together and lock them in a room and let them battle it out. I think, but sometimes what's happening is we're having at big companies, HR makes a lot of decisions, right? And maybe that maybe they don't have the right mix. No, but I think that the management needs to believe it. That's the problem, you know. Like the HR kind of diversity is much more of the like box ticking kind, but this is a level deeper than that. It's where the management would need to not pick people who are just like them and telling them how great their decisions are, which is, you know, the really comfortable, nice way to do things. And that's the way if you want to, you know, progress through your career quickly, you know, you find a, a manager and, um, you know, become just like them. And, and people tend to promote people that, you know, remind them of themselves. Um, that's an excellent way to end up with huge, huge company-wide um, quality problems. Yeah, if if you just do that. So instead, you've got to say, okay, I'm a manager and I am going to end up with a better, stronger company if I am a bit uncomfortable and I recognize that, you know, different experiences that I don't have are going to be valuable. You will sometimes make mistakes, you know, it's not the safe thing to do. You're not as well equipped to assess how good um, that person is. But overall, over time, I mean, the, if you look into the, the data on diversity, it does improve things when you have that that real kind of diversity of, of thought. So we'll see we'll see if that happens within um, within Siemens Gamesa, right? There's going to be a, a deep investigation into this because nobody has a billion dollar possible loss and doesn't dive in, right? And and of course we're probably not going to hear all the results. We're nobody's going to publish a, a report that says here's where we messed up, but uh, something will come out of it. We'll get more news on this as it develops. We should take the time to um, plug at, at least Pilot Consulting and Wind Power Lab. But if you know if you have a fleet of these blades and you're um, you're feeling worried, then you know you're going to need somebody who knows the industry to get in there and have those conversations to make sure that things are taken taken care of. And get a get a lawyer before you sign anything. Yeah, for for retrofits, repairs, whatever they're going to say they're going to do to these turbines, have a third party, someone independent review that contract before you sign it. No matter how much you like your salesperson or how how many dinners they've taken you out to, this this is a it's not a small small uh, issue here. That's going to do it for this week's Uptime Wind Energy podcast. Thanks for listening. Please give us a five star rating on your podcast platform and subscribe in the show notes below to Uptime Tech News, our weekly newsletter. And check out Rosemary's YouTube channel, Engineering with Rosie. We'll see you here next week on the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast.